0: And welcome to Jay Hutch Talks Too Much. Who's ready for some 1800 BC Mesopotamian action? Which, by the way, is, I think something that uh, Gilgamesh says himself in the Epic of Gilgamesh. My name is Jesse, and we are talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, this live stream, I talked a little bit about this in my introduction, that we are going to be going over various sorts of things on this channel um, film, uh, politics um, but also to some degree books literature and I thought what better book to start with than the epic of Gilgamesh because it's a it's a great book to look at for several reasons one of the m- more significant reasons is that the Epic of Gilgamesh is maybe the first, fictional story that was ever known, as far as we know, Um, one of the very earliest fictional stories. So it's a a really cool story to talk about for that reason. And what I want to do is is talk about why I think it's sort of worth looking at, why it's worth exploring. But uh, I do sort of want to start off by um, sort of going over the story a little bit because I'm sure most people uh, don't know that the epic of what the story is about haven't read it before so I'll quickly sort of run through the story I will say there are, are many different translations of the epic of Gilgamesh that are out there I uh, over the course of the last couple of years have read Two of the translations, um, both fairly early ones. Uh, One is from 1901. uh, The other one is, I think, from maybe 1960. I say that that's early, um, even though the story has been around since uh, about as far back as 2100 BC, which is uh, um, obviously much, much farther away from these translations. But um, the story really was unknown largely in the, in the sort of Western modern world until the 1860s, 1870s, when it was discovered and went through a process of translation. Um, so, And then you had these kind of translations that came out. And so the one I read from 1901, the one actually that I want to talk about was the later one that was translated by somebody named Nancy... Sanders, N.K. Sanders, um, which is a very easy read. You'd actually be surprised how easy it is to read. It does not seem at, in any way like a book that would have been written in 2100 BC. It feels much newer than that. Um, it feels like it's at least from 1200 BC or something like that. So it's a, it's a, uh, easy translation to read. I know that there are some very difficult ones, but it's also, in my opinion, and and uh, I know that it's very much a particular facet of this translation. It's a it's a actually quite a funny translation. There's something about the Epic of Gilgamesh that I always thought since the first time I read it that would lend itself really well to a, a parody like a Monty Python kind of parody or a Mel Brooks sort of parody. And we'll see that, as I think, as we go through it. But uh, I'll just sort of walk you as, as quickly as I can um, through the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, and then we'll, we'll talk about why I think that it's a, maybe an interesting story to read on your own, to, to to think about it as being something that you would like to look at. Um, but okay, so again, the version that I have is actually very short. It's only about 60 pages long. It's, a, it's an epic poem as opposed to a, a novel, and it begins essentially with a description of Gilgamesh the king. Now, Gilgamesh, by the way, was a um, supposedly, according to historical records, Gilgamesh was a real person. Um, I think probably a king in around 2700 BC in that time, um, which is interesting given when we have records of these stories, and and we'll we'll talk about that uh, as well. But it starts off with a description of Gilgamesh, the king of Uruk. Um, he's described as a as a really not a good king at all. So actually, if I could, I'll just read a, a, a quote. I, I wrote some quotes down. Um, I will, uh, let's see, Gilgamesh sounds the toxin for his amusement. His arrogance has no bounds by day or night. Okay, so we learn he's he's arrogant. No son is left with his father, for Gilgamesh takes them all. He takes every son. No son is left with his father. Even the children, it says. That's right. Horrifying. Yet Yet the king should be a shepherd to his people. His lust leaves no virgin to her lover, neither the warrior's daughter nor the wife of the noble. Once again, you can kind of see Mel Brooks saying it's good to be the king at this point. Yet this is the shepherd of the city, wise, comely, and resolute. Okay, he's not a good king. Actually, if I may just break from the synopsis for one second, I I do want to also go over some some of the examples of why I think that um, Gilgamesh is not only arrogant; he's hilariously arrogant, um, and to the point where he just is absolutely not s- self-conscious about how he's acting at all. Later in the story, he—it's—it's—it's it's, it's quite late. He's traveled a long distance, and he's trying to find, as we'll as we'll discuss in a minute, he's he's trying to find the uh, the uh, the meaning of oh no, he's trying to find everlasting life. I should say. Uh, he, he's found one one person, one mortal human, non-god, who's actually become immortal, and he's trying to find out what the secret uh, is so that he can become immortal. And he gets to this land after um, traveling a great distance, and this lady, Siduri, she's, she's sitting by the sea, and she sees Gilgamesh, who's At this point, he's sort of driven himself insane. Um, He is bedraggled, I think is a good word to use to describe his appearance. He's extraordinarily bedraggled. Um, And this bedraggled mess of a human being is just wandering up to this Lady Siduri. And uh, this is what she says. Her first words is, as uh, she looks at him coming up at the distance, she says, surely this is some felon. She thinks she thinks he's a felon. Where is he going now? Like, she must be watching this guy kind of, like, wandering aimlessly around. And then it says, and she barred her gate against him with a crossbar and shot home the bolt. Okay, so she sees this guy. She's like, nope, sorry, closing up shop. It's kind of like in an old Western when a duel is about to break out in the middle of the the dusty road and they bring down the thing that says closed it's kind of like that <clears throat> she she closes up her gate uh, and tries to pull the the bolt across but then it says but gilgamesh he really springs into action at this point gilgamesh hearing the sound of the bolt threw up his head and lodged his foot in the gate so somehow between the time that she sees him and decides she's going to close the gate he's decided no i'm going to i'm going to get into that gate And he uh, puts his foot into the gate. She can't close the door. And this is what he says. It's a fantastic line. He says, the first line sounds so innocent. And then the second one is, well, well, here. He says, uh, young woman, maker of wine. She is a maker of wine. Woman of the vine, she's called. Young woman, maker of wine. Why do you bolt your door? what did you see that made you bar your gate? And then immediately, next sentence, previous sentence, what did you see that made you bar your gate? I will break in your door and burst in your gate for I am Gilgamesh who seized and killed the bull of heaven. I killed the watchman of the cedar forest. I overthrew Himbaba who lived in the forest and I killed the lions in the passes of the mountains. Well, he kind of answers his own question there, I think. I feel like he should kind of probably realize why maybe at that point, why did you bar your gate? I killed so many people. And then, you know, he's trying to get to this even further point uh, on a, on a boat. Um, and uh, he says uh, at one point, I will cross the ocean if it's possible. And Siduri, the same woman that she's now engaged I'm sure very begrudgingly engaged in a conversation with Gilgamesh. And he says, I'll cross the ocean to get to where I need to get to if I need to. And Siduri says to him, Gilgamesh, there is no crossing the ocean. The place and the passage are difficult and the waters of death are deep, which flow between. So she's essentially saying, no, you're not gonna be able to get to where you're going. And then the text says, when Gilgamesh heard this, he was seized with anger. He took his axe in his hand and his dagger from his belt and shattered the tackle of the boat in his rage. So now he's just destroyed the boat, the tackle of the boat. Then he gets to the guy who's, who's, this is his boat, Urshinabi. He rides the boat. And uh, he's trying to now reason with Urshinabi to get to where he needs to get to. And he says, again, if it's possible, I'll cross the waters of death which again is, a, is just a, an outlandish thing to say when you think about it, right? I'll, I'll cross the waters of death. And Urshanabi says to him, at the, you know, there's, still a, there's still hope, right? Urshanabi is more willing to reason with Gilgamesh. He says, Gilgamesh, your own hands have prevented you from crossing the ocean. When you destroyed the tackle of the boat, you destroyed its safety. And Gilgamesh's response to this is, why are you so angry with me? Like the resp- again, the lack of self consciousness, the lack of understanding of the whole situation here is remarkable. Why are you acting like this is my fault? Why do I get blamed for everything? All right, I, I broke the boat. I was pissed. What do you want me to say? I can a, can a guy get angry every now and then? I feel like we could still make this work somehow. I don't I don't see why we need to, to play the, the blame game in the in this in this exchange anyway um that's that's gilgamesh right that that's gilgamesh as a character so actually that the 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 moments that i described are are again in the second half of the text when he's when he actually starts to get a bit more human in his relations with other people and uh so you can imagine kind of what he's like at the the beginning of the story anyway so he's this horrible. He's this horrible kid, right? Takes all the sons, takes all the brides. So the people of Uruk they gather together, and they pray to the gods to bring somebody who can stop Gilgamesh. Understandably, right? This makes perfect sense. Uh, or just distract him, like give him something to focus his attention because we're we're sick of this. So they, uh, the gods respond by creating Enkidu, and Enkidu is, this, uh, is a beast. He's, I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating. He's a literal, he's, he's a beast, right? And he's, he's living out with other animals in the field, but he is also like uh, a man at the same time, but he behaves like a beast. So I guess maybe I was exaggerating a little bit. So okay, so uh, he's causing problems for for um, trappers because I think he's, from my memory, uh, and forgive me, I, I I've read this book five times now. Um, I did I, I went over it before this, so I I, I don't have every single detail down, but um, I do remember a lot of it. <clears throat> I think he's he must be either releasing the things in in the trapper's trap or he's eating them himself. So he's like, oh, how am I going to solve this problem? So he goes to Gilgamesh and he's like, I've got this guy out on the field, he's wreaking havoc. And Gilgamesh says that the, uh, the thing that he proposes, and I will say, I'm just quoting Gilgamesh at this point, or I'm paraphrasing. He says, Go get a harlot. This is that's the word, that's the word of the book. That's the word of the book. Not my word. Go get a harlot, and this will she will essentially humanize him. She will take away the beast that is within him. The crazy thing is, in the book, he's not the first person to suggest this. He's the second person to. Because the because the trapper first goes to a, to somebody else and says, "I what do I do?" And he says, "Well, you obviously need to go get a harlot. I mean, there's no other there's no other possible solution to this problem. So go to Gilgamesh and tell him, and he'll he'll tell you. And he does. That's exactly what he tells him, and it works. I mean, that's the other thing is that this whole thing works. Uh, uh, Gil, uh, a harlot, what she's unnamed. That's another. Whole problem, right? She doesn't have a name, I don't think. I think in some version she does, but uh, Shamhat, I think, is is her name. But I, I'm not, I'm not sure she has one in the in the uh, NK Sanders translation. She does. Uh, she she goes and she uh, you know humanizes him, if you catch my drift, and um, and uh, he then uh, comes back to the town of Uruk, or he comes to the town of Uruk with her. And he uh, hears that Gilgamesh is, of course, up to no good. So he's like, I'm going to stop this Gilgamesh guy, which, remember, he was pretty much designed to do. So he goes to uh, stop Gilgamesh from, you know, doing whatever it is he does. Gilgamesh and Enkidu then get into this big fight. And uh, at the end of it, they kind of like, they, as two incredibly toxic, Men they are like, hey, you're all right. This guy is okay. And uh, and so that's what ends up happening. They end up uh <laughs> let me just say, I know that I'm having sort of fun with the synopsis, and this is all real. This is all in the book, I promise you. But um but I do think it's a really important book to read, and I think that it's a it's a good book to talk about. But also, it's just this hopefully, in some ways, sort of demonstrates really just how fun. The, the story is and how 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 crazy it is as well so okay uh they become friends um now again a lot of there they've only found fragments of the epic of gilgamesh over the years so i don't know how much there's been different versions right there's one from 2100 bc one from 1800 bc one from i think 1100 bc and um, we're just getting kind of different different uh, versions of them and and surely there's I think I just heard two weeks ago, maybe, or maybe a week ago, that they're still, they've just found another piece. So they're still finding pieces. It's by no means a, a really good sort of flowing narrative. You get lots of empty spaces that clearly I think probably would have been filled in by a, a fuller story. Anyway, uh, so so they're, uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu have just become friends and Inkadu is is now bored, right? He says uh, that he's very bored with life. So Gilgamesh says, oh, wow, I have a good idea. Let's go into the forest and kill someone. (laughs) So that's what they do. They go into the cedar forest and kill Humbaba, who is essentially the guardian of the forest. But Humbaba is also clearly a very evil person as well. I will say I've taught the epic of Gilgamesh quite a few times in um, in my classes and people talk about and I could see this from the the version that we're reading that they talk about how terrible Gilgamesh and Enkidu are for for killing Humbaba the the guardian of the forest and even at one point You know, Humbaba basically says, you know, uh, let's, can we just talk this out? And Inkadu says, no, we are not talking this out. We are killing you, is is essentially what's going to happen. And so they say, oh my gosh, like these guys are terrible murderers. But I also think, I also think there's good reason to accept what the text is telling us, which is that Humbaba is a ferocious giant. This is, I'm quoting now. Uh, he's he's referred to as being evil. We, uh, Gilgamesh says we will go to the forest and destroy the evil. Um, uh, Humbaba is a ferocious giant. When he roars, it's like the torrent of a storm. His breath is like fire, and his jaws are death itself. So you know he's not a not a. I don't think he's a particularly good guy either. And I think we're I think we're at least and we can sort of debate this. I think, but I think we are compelled to look at Humbaba. As, as a villain in this story. And when he is sort of pleading with Gilgamesh and Enkidu, is like, no, no, it's a trick, which again, seems like perhaps Enkidu, he doesn't know what he's talking about, but Enkidu also says that he knows of Humbaba from his time living as this beast out in the natural world. So he seems to have some good idea of just how terrible Humbaba is, and that this probably is like a trick to, you know, if he says, okay, let's talk about this, come into my, you know, come into the forest and we'll have some tea or something like that. And then as soon as Gilgamesh and, uh, and Enkidu are turned, he poisons the tea. I don't know. This is, I'm talking, like it's an Agatha Christie novel, but anyway, this is, I, I think we're meant to think of Mbaba as this kind of bad guy. And so they, they kill him. And, um, some of the gods like this some of them don't you know if you've read mythological stories and we'll, we'll talk about more i think on this channel you'll find that the gods are rarely ever in agreement about anything you know they're they're almost always uh you know arguing about something sorry just one second so <clears throat> um then at that point they killed the, the the guardian of the forest in And uh, they have this meeting with Ishtar, a goddess, who uh, is very impressed with Gilgamesh and says and asks uh, Gilgamesh to marry her. And what follows is uh, the most crazy rejection of a marriage proposal you will ever hear in your life. Um, <clears throat> hopefully, I can only hope that it's the craziest one that you hear in your life. I, I again, I've quoted it. I, I've this. What I'm about to read you is about a third of his response. All all she does is ask him to marry him, and this is what he says: "Listen to me while I tell the tale of your lovers." Again, we're off to a great start. here, right. As a as a response to a wedding proposal, let me tell you the tale of your lovers. There was Tammuz, the lover of your youth. You struck and broke his wing. I I, I think he may have been a bird, but I'm not sure. You have loved the shepherd of the flock. He made meal cake for you day after day. He killed kids for your sake. Wait a second. So let's pause on that for one second. Um, this is a shepherd that uh, was in a relationship with um, Ishtar. And uh, you know he did some he did some nice things for her. He made meal cake for her, and he did some not so nice things for her as well, as I think we as we think we can see. He killed kids for your sake. He Gilgamesh is very nonchalant about that particular aspect of the story. Uh, okay, so he did those things. You struck and turned him into a wolf, and did you not love uh, uh, Ishulanu? You struck him. He was changed to a blind mole deep in the earth, one whose desire is always beyond his reach. And if you and I should be lovers, should I not be served in the same fashion as all these others whom you once loved? Well, I mean, uh, I, I, a simple no probably would have sufficed in, in that particular case, but I will say, you know, I, I've, I've, in my classes, um, students have reacted to this in interesting ways, right? Some, some of them will say, you know, he's, he's shaming her, which I think, again, if you read the first sentence alone, right? Um, let me, uh, listen to me while I tell the tale of your lovers. Yeah, it does, not a, obviously not a very good start. <clears throat> On the other hand, um, uh, Ishtar does not sound like a good person either. You know, we're, we're not really in a world we're not dealing, in the epic of Gilgamesh, in the world of this story, we're not dealing with many people of what our standards would say are fine, upstanding, moral people, okay? Gilgamesh, Enkidu, uh, the harlot is fine, I will say that. Um, uh, Humbaba... Uh, uh, Ishtar, not none of these. None of these are good, right? Um, I do think it's the, the what I will say is rather than maybe criticize Gilgamesh here in this moment because I think he's probably right to be a little bit, you know, a little bit nervous of Ishtar, given given this record that he lays out. But I do think that I think we could be critical of the text, the book itself, the poem for having this sort of double standard because i think that in many ways as as the as the book unfolds right so i'll kind of spoil a little bit of it in terms of where it's going as the book unfolds gilgamesh does have this change at the end of the story where he's now a good king right now he's a good guy and we think and at the end of the book it's like he came back he came to uruk back to uruk uruk and he was great. You know, he was good to the people. He was a shepherd to his people and all this kind of stuff. So I think there is a kind of a, um, a forgiveness for Gilgamesh, which I am totally in favor of people. People do change. People can have significant transformations. Gilgamesh has one comes back, seems to live out the rest of his days as a great person, does great things, helps the city and all this kind of stuff <clears throat> that, that, that forgiveness does not seem to be accorded to Ishtar, right? We don't get the sense that she she can change, right? There's no kind of forgiveness meted out for her. So I do think we we could suggest that there is a double standard at work with in terms of its dealing with these two characters, right? So I think that's certainly one way of thinking about it. So Ishtar... Here is Gilgamesh's response, and she's not thrilled. You know, she does not like the way that he has responded. So she decides to send what what is called the Bull of Heaven to go out there and kill Gilgamesh and Enkidu, and probably many other people as well, because the 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 Bull of Heaven is so destructive that it it tears the ground apart and people f- fall into the ground and into the pits of the earth and vanish it's an angry bull and so they uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu quickly kill the bull of heaven Uh, and this because the the bull of heaven is is privy to the gods and Gilgamesh and Enkidu killed it, this really outrages some of the gods so it's decided that one of the two, Gilgamesh or Enkidu, has to die, and they choose Enkidu because, for one, it's the epic of Gilgamesh. For second, Gilgamesh is the king, right? So uh, we can't we can't kill the king. We have to kill the character of Enkidu. So Enkidu. Realizes he comes to him in a dream. There's a lot of dreams and visions in this story. Also, a lot of ignoring what the dreams and visions portend. Um, and uh, so that happens a lot throughout the story. And so Inkadu realizes he's going to die. And within about 10 days, he, he deter- does deterioro- deteriorate and he does die. And this brings about a significant. Change in in Gilgamesh. Um, he is completely emotionally and mentally destroyed by Enkidu. He tears out his hair. Um, he's he's obviously upset. A big part of being upset is that his friend has died. So th- I will I will say that that's certainly a big part of it, but. Another part of it is he has become confronted with his own mortality as if for the very first time. Gilgamesh, I will stop and say at this point because I can't believe I haven't said it yet already. It's We're half an hour in and I and this is a pretty important part of the story. It's my first one, guys. So um, uh, Gilgamesh is, is a demigod, okay? So he's two thirds god one-third mortal man i don't know where that breakdown happens i don't know how that's possible in terms of the the genetics i don't think the writers were thinking about that part of it but his mother is a goddess his father was regular guy um so uh that's that's gilgamesh's breakdown two-thirds god one-third man but because he's not fully God, because of that one-third man, he's still going to die, just like every other mortal man. He doesn't get to join the pantheon of the gods. Okay? So, he becomes aware of his own mortality at this point. I cannot believe it took me that long to talk about the fact that Gilgamesh was was a demigod. But anyway... He is, we're gonna get past him. So at that point, Gilgamesh decides, oh, I've heard of a guy, he says that um, he's he's become immortal, Utnapishton, and I'm gonna go find him and find out how he became immortal. So Gilgamesh travels, I've already talked about the episode with Siduri, with Urshanabi, he gets over there to Utnapishton, and Utnapishtim tells him the story of how he became immortal, and he tells the story of the flood. So uh, any of you who are familiar with biblical history will recognize this story immediately. It is almost identical to the Noah's Ark story, but about uh, a thousand years or so before that story first gets told, uh, according to the scholars. So it's in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Utnapishton is told that the the world is going to be exterminated. Um, Although I will say part of it is, one part that's a little bit different is that in this story, uh, again, part of that great Nancy K. Sanders translation, a part of the reason why they're, uh, why humanity is being exterminated is because they're just too noisy. They're, they're just too loud. They're keeping the gods up, and they're distracting them. That is actually in the text. So uh, they tell Utnaparston to build a gigantic boat, to take with him the seed of every living creature, and to basically live through the flood. He does, and because he does this, he gets granted immortality, essentially. Again, the flood that destroys humanity is a matter of great debate amongst the gods. So Utnapishtim tells Gilgamesh this story. He says, I'm sorry, you can't be immortal like me. Um, <clears throat> but he says, there is this um, plant that if you go out into the water and you grab it, it will grant you everlasting life. So he says that you still have the possibility of getting everlasting life. And Gilgamesh is so thankful for this. He goes out with... Uh, Urshan Abbey, again, grabs the plant of everlasting life. Doesn't take any. This is how we know that Gilgamesh is changing as a person. Says, I'm going to bring this back to Uruk, and I'm going to feed this to all the older people in my town. Uh, and it, we will call it, he gives it a name, right? The name, again, is fantastic. It's something like the old people become young again. I'm, I'm, It's very close to that. Maybe I'll look it up in a second. Hold on a second. Hold on. Gilgamesh plant. Old become young again. I'm looking this up now as we speak. <clears throat> uh, yeah. The old man becomes young again man plant. Okay. He doesn't have the greatest knack for naming. But okay. So that's what he, that is the plant. He uh grabs it, but then a snake comes and takes it. It sheds its skin because it's become younger, and he and the snake brings the plant away. Gilgamesh is once again in despair, says, All right, let's go back to let's go back to Urk. And but when he gets back, he kind of shows off his town to Urshanabi. He says, Look at this wonderful town. And then Basically, that's when we get to the conclusion and they say, you know, from this point on, I I may have um, got this. Um, You were given the this was the meaning of your dream. So at the beginning, he has this dream. um, But again, he denies what the dream is. And it says this was the meaning of your dream. You were given the kingship. Such was your destiny. Everlasting life was not your destiny. Because of this, do not be sad at heart. Do not be grieved or oppressed. He has given you power to bind and to loose, to be the darkness and the light of mankind. He has been given, he has given unexampled supremacy over the people, victory in battle from which no fugitive returns in forays and assaults from which there's no going back. But do not abuse this power. Deal justly with your servants in the palace. Deal justly before the face of the sun. And we're given every indication that that's exactly what he does. He, he dies at the very end of the text. Spoiler alert, he dies and is a very much revered and highly regarded king. So there is this sense that, okay, he understands his destiny at this point to be a great king and and he becomes one. So that ultimately, this is, I don't think I'll do this again where I will go through the plot in this much detail, but it's such a, it's such a fun and enjoyable story that I wanted to do it for this one. Okay. So Let's talk about why I think that this is an interesting story. Again, I I would imagine that when people read the Epic of Gilgamesh or start to read it, they would be a little bit nervous about it being a difficult read. But as I said, at the very least, the translation that I read, and even the other translation that I read, it's, it's it's pretty easy. Now, it doesn't read like a contemporary text, certainly. And one, one thing that's, that demonstrates this is that there is a lot of repetition in the book, a lot of it. And uh, actually, I, I'm just going to show uh, this to you now. Um, I don't know if you can look at this closely or not, but this is from one of the chapters. This is when he goes to see, tries to find uh, Utnapishtim. Um, And he's talking to Siduri, first of all, uh, the wine uh, maker. And uh, she says, uh, wait a second, let me see if I can find the, the original one. So she says to him, why are your cheeks so starved? And why is your face so drawn? You can maybe see it here. Gilgamesh answered her. And why should not my cheeks be starved and my face drawn? Despair is in my heart and my face is the face of one who has made a long journey." Okay. So then we get to Urson uh, Urson Abbey, the the boat, the, the man with the boat. He says to him, why are your cheeks so starved and your face drawn? Gilgamesh said to him, why should not my cheeks be starved and my face drawn? Despair is in my heart. And my face is the face of one who has made a long journey. Then he goes to Utnapishtim, asks him, why are your cheeks so starved and your face drawn? Gilgamesh said to him, why not? Why should not my cheeks be starved and my face drawn? And on and on and on. We, so this is, we see this three times uh, in the text, right? Um, so yeah, there's and that's not the only time we see that much repetition. There's a lot of repetition in the text. And I think that there's, you know, there's a couple of explanations for that. One, I think the most obvious explanation is that the Epic of Gilgamesh comes from this oral tradition. Um, the stories, obviously, uh, as we know, Gilgamesh, as I as I mentioned earlier in the stream, Gilgamesh uh, was a real king, probably in 2700 BC, and then the earliest version of the story that we know of is from 2100 BC and then and then the uh, the more standard version is from 1800 BC. Now if you think about that, that's 700 to 900 years later or 6 600 to 900 years later. They're still telling this story of Gilgamesh, right? Which tells you, you know, that obviously the story had become something of a legend, right? Again, it does sort of demonstrate how fascinating the story is because it shows you that this, this character was so compelling that people were still talking about him. Obviously, it was this was a huge cultural story for 600, 800, 900 years, they were still talking about it, right? And if you kind of listen to the story, you can probably sort of see how, obviously, I'm just speculating, but it probably it probably transformed over the years into this kind of legend, right? Because it has that, Mesopotamia, um, uh, Babylonia, this area would have been a big trading area. So you can see maybe people coming into town to trade things and there's nothing to do in town, right? So so sit down. No matter where you go, there's no TV, there's no no internet, anything like that. So it's like sit down. Let me tell you a story. Did you ever hear the story of our great king Gilgamesh? Two thirds god he was. He had the he had arms as big as tree. Tr- I don't know why there are Irish in this story, but anyway, the huge man went out to the forest. That's the thing is that they have. Um, Gilgamesh supposedly did bring a lot of security and stability to this, to this town because he went out to get the timber from the woods and he brought it back. And you can kind of see how that gets transformed into the Humbaba story, right? He went out to the, to the forest. I'm still going Irish. I'm, I really don't know, but it seems to make the story more legendary. I went out to the forest and he did battle with a horrible, evil forest dweller and, came back with the trees and you can kind of see how it all became this sort of mythical, legendary story about this sort of great, fantastic leader that we, that we once had, right? And you can sort of see how different nations even still today will build these kind of grand narratives around these sort of heroic figures who are real but the stories about them are mythical, right? So, um, so Gilgamesh is that sort of character, and but also when you're telling a story, you know I know this experience from teaching in a classroom. When you're talking to people, there are certain things that you need to sort of emphasize, right? And so you repeat things that you wouldn't normally repeat if you just re- wrote it down, because you don't. It, it's not ephemeral when you just write it down, or right? it doesn't just disappear into nothing, right? So you have to bring things back. Hey, remember when I said this? this thing um, so that is is definitely part of it <clears throat> but also it's 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 a standard that we we don't seem to have a problem with when it's in music right if you think of the, some of the most popular songs right Let it be by the Beatles think of how many times he says let it be in that song. Uh, Obviously there's the chorus where he says it a bunch of times, but then he comes back to that chorus, right? Or a more contemporary example, Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, right? Says shake it off about 500 times. And we tend to accept it when it's music, but when it's a story, we don't do that. It's not conventional anymore. But we can kind of see how maybe it was the convention at one point. So it has a kind of musical quality to it that's quite interesting. So we see this kind of we see these differences, obviously because it's from this sort of oral tradition. But also, it's just an early example of literature, and I'm sure many of you have had this experience where you watch a television show, you. Uh, you watch it from the very beginning, right? And it goes on for season after season. And you're, let's say you're in the middle of season seven and it's still going. The show's not showing any signs of stopping. It probably should stop because the show that goes on for that long isn't usually very good. But anyway, it's in the seventh season. And uh, that's right. That's, I, I said that. So you can put your comments below. Um, in the seventh season, uh you're really into the show, and you decide at that point, I'm going to go back to season one. You haven't wa- you haven't gone back to look at any older episodes, so you go back to start it again. Even though the show's not over yet, you go back all the way back to season one, and you go back there and you put on episode one, which you loved when you first saw it, it was the thing that got this whole thing started. And as soon as you get back to that episode one, um, you are you you, you realize that. Uh, whoa, this was a completely different show. This is not the show that I watch anymore, right? It's, a, it's an entirely different sort of thing. So uh, I think that this happens, right, a lot. And, and I think that you could say it's not only just true of a TV show, but it's it's also true of, of art forms in general. So if you go back to the very beginning of literature, it's not going to be like the literature as it is today, right? doesn't mean it's not as good, right? Obviously when you go back and watch episode 1 of your favorite show, it's still the show that you fell in love with and that made you kind of keep wanting to watch more. It's just this different thing. It changed, it evolved over time, right? Same thing is true with literature. Same thing is true with film, right? Even if you just look at something which is a much sort of sh- has a much shorter lifespan. Go back and watch a movie even past the silent era, 1930s, 1940s, the pacing is all different. The The way that the story unfolds is different from today just because the conventions were different and they've changed and the, they're going to keep changing. So uh, th- that's another reason why you will see um uh, these differences, but nevertheless, despite these differences, just as I think that there's a lot of value in talking about movies from the 30s and 40s, and I'll probably end up talking about one of those next week. I think um, it's going to be one of two. I thought I was going to, anyways. I'll talk about that at the end. Um, but uh, it, it, nevertheless, I still think that there's a lot of things that are interesting. You just kind of have to accept it as something that's different, right? It's this different thing. It's almost not even a a book anymore, or it's not even a movie a movie from the 30s and 40s, not a movie as you know movies, right? It's it's this other kind of art form that you can appreciate in these other ways if you don't go into it with the kind of expectations that you have when you go into a a contemporary story. So same is true with the Epic of Gilgamesh. So I want to just spend the rest of my time here talking about why I think that this particular story is one that is interesting. When I teach the Epic of Gilgamesh, I teach it as uh, part of uh, a superhero course that I teach that I've taught about five times, so I teach the Epic of Gilgamesh as a superhero story, or actually, I, I really teach it as a sort of proto superhero story because it doesn't really tick all the boxes of a superhero story. It's, uh, um, some some can disagree, but uh, and, and happy to see you disagree, but I think that the superhero doesn't really start until Superman in in 1938. I think. Um, I think that's the very first sort of real superhero that you get. And so anybody that you can kind of name before that is kind of warming up for the actual sort of superheroes. And, and certainly students understandably have a hard time reading Gilgamesh as a superhero, because as I mentioned at the beginning of the book, he does all those terrible things, right? Even the children, right? We remember that line. Um, so yeah, the, he he does all sorts of terrible, seemingly irredeemable things. So you would never see Superman doing those things. You would never see Batman doing those things, right? You would definitely never see Captain America doing those things, right? Because he's Captain America, you wouldn't want to see him doing those things. So um, you don't see you don't see that in your regular everyday superheroes, <laughs> the regular everyday ones. Um, so Gilgamesh is hard to read as a superhero, but but uh, obviously he's got certain sort of um, aspects of them, right? As we said, he's he's he, he is supernatural in the sense that he's a demigod, right? Two thirds god, one third man. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of superhero characters, um, he is sort of representing, I think, the the desires and wants of a sort of given population at the time that the story comes about. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you know, in the 1930s, when Superman comes about, you know, uh, he talks about Superman himself in the in the stories, talks about how he's a he is a um, uh, superhero for the oppressed. You know, he's standing up for the common person. And this is really crucial because it comes during, you know, comes out of the Great Depression, basically. 1930s, just this sort of horrifying period of sort of massive poverty, depression, right? And so Superman is a is a champion of the oppressed, um, and that is what people needed at that particular time, right? At, in fact, they probably need it at all times. And not just in the 1930s, but it was it was a dominant way of thinking about people's lives at that point in time, right? Even if just to use movies again, if you go back and look at movies from the 1930s, there is an acknowledgement of poverty and depression and uh, labor issues in those movies that you that you don't really see to that extent in other time periods. I'm not saying you don't see movies like that again, but you don't see them that consistently. Like I was just watching My Man Godfrey the other night, which is a very light screwball comedy from the 1930s, 1936. And it starts off in this in this area where where homeless people congregate, what they call lost men. That's My Man Godfrey and, you know, Grapes of Wrath and Charlie Chaplin's movies and things like that. You know, you just see this, this, there's a lot of thinking going on about poverty and what are we going to do about this? Um, And so then you have the champion of the oppressed coming out in 1938, Superman, right? This is what, if you look at the movies at the time, this is exactly kind of the sort of superheroic figure that I think a lot of people sort of felt they needed, for better or worse. I'm not necessarily saying it's a good thing, but but you can see that that was a kind of a desire that people wanted and needed. By the time you get to Frank Miller and uh, The Dark Knight re- uh, Returns in the 1980s, you get this kind of anti-government, um, individualist kind of superhero in Batman. Um Uh, Also, it's sort of a champion of the oppressed, but in a much different way, right? In the kind of the the sort of Reagan-esque champion of the oppressed, Um, whatever that means. Um, But uh, but the kind of conceptualizing of that in that particular time period. So um, I I do want to just bracket that by saying I do not believe Ronald Reagan was a champion of the oppressed. (laughs) Just want to make that point. So, okay. So with that in mind, um, again, leave your comments below. So uh, with with that in mind, uh, I think that the Epic of Gilgamesh also kind of represents kind of what people wanted, an unconscious desire that people had at that particular time. Um, I think the most fascinating aspect of the Epic of Gilgamesh is how much Gilgamesh fears death. We talked about how he sort of enters into this trauma after his best friend Inkadu dies, but in fact, it actually starts before that. When they go out to the cedar forest to kill Humbaba, the uh, the first thing that Gilgamesh says as one of the as one of the reasons why they're going is to get their names permanently stamped on in history. Right? He doesn't quite say it like that, but that's that's essentially what he means, right? Um, let's see if I can find it. Um, let's see, does he say it? If I fall, I leave behind me a name that endures, right? So this this idea that he wants to basically, in some ways live forever, even then. But there is this kind of awareness of mortality after Enkidu dies, and he keeps saying, I will die just as my friend did. And he does, he goes through this, what one could call, I, I am not going to call this, and I'll explain that why in a second, but what one could call a sort of existential crisis, this kind of great sort of fear of of death. But the reason why I wouldn't call it an existential crisis Existentialism as a philosophy doesn't emerge until like World War II, right? It's a it's a late 1930s, 1940s philosophy that emerges out of France, right? Jean Paul Sartre, um, and it it emerges out of this sort of mindset that life is meaningless, right? Um, and therefore, you know, there's no sort of predestined life. You make of you you make your own meaning right? We are not born into a certain kind of meaning. This is not the mindset of the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? This is not the belief system that motivates the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's not existential. It's in fact, the opposite of existential, right? It is um, Gilgamesh's great fear. The reason why he's so anguished is not because he doesn't know what's going to happen after he dies, it's because he knows all too well what's going to happen after he dies. It has all been destined for him. He knows exactly, right? Just as it says at the end, this was not your destiny. Your destiny was not to live forever. Um, and what does happen? Well, you know, for the uh, the dominant belief system at the time, um, when you die, you end up going to what's called the underworld, right? And the underworld is actually described in the text. Enkidu, when he gets his vision that he's going to die, sees the underworld. And everybody goes to the underworld with the exception of the gods, right? Including Gilgamesh, who's two-thirds god. The gods don't go to the underworld, but everybody else does, right? There's no sense of heaven or hell. There's just the underworld. And it's described this way, there is the house whose people sit in darkness, dust is their food and clay their meat. They are clothed like birds with wings for covering. They see no light. They sit in darkness. Enkidu says, I entered the house of dust and I saw the kings of the earth, their crowns put away forever. So these are the kings, right? People like Gilgamesh, right? Very powerful people but they're there too. Their crowns are put away forever. Rulers and princes, all those who once wore kingly crowns and ruled the world in the days of old, right? A little bit like Percy Shelley's Ozymandias, if you've read that, something something, kind of like that mindset. Look that poem up. It's very short. It's very good. Maybe my favorite poem of all time. They who had stood in the place of the gods, like Anne and Enlil stood now like servants to fetch baked meats in the house of dust, to carry cooked meat and cold water from the water skin. Right? This sounds awful, right? This sounds absolutely terrible, right? And everybody is going there, right? Uh, As N.K. Sanders uh, describes um, sort of what life was like uh, in this sort of time period, you can take of it what, what you will. Uh, But Sanders writes that the poem would have been written during a, quote, period of anxiety in which people feared that the unaccountable and turbulent powers may at any time bring disaster to human society. The cause of pervasive pessimism of Mesopotamian thought lay partly in the precariousness of life in the city-states, dependent on vagaries of flood and drought and, I like this part, turbulent neighbors. (laughs) So, So those are the three you know, uh, the three bad things, flood, drought, bad neighbors. Don't want any of those kinds of things. Okay. So life was not good. On average, you lived maybe, I mean, there's not great studies on this, but you lived maybe to around 40. The, The life you lived was not particularly good. It was hard. It was difficult. And then at the end of it, you end up, if you follow the dominant, you know, a belief system of the day, you end up in the underworld, where you know, eating dust in the dark, and uh, so you know, this is very unpleasant, you know, and you can see how this would be a hard thing to accept, but you can imagine how it would be an even harder thing to accept for a character like Gilgamesh, right? He's two thirds god; he's sixty six percent of the way there you know, he's almost out of the underworld. And even more so, he almost gets immortality in this text. He gets that plant, and then he loses it, right? But you can kind of imagine, right? What? And I'm not saying this is right. There's no reason for a king or a ruler or Gilgamesh to feel above or superior to anybody else. But you can kind of imagine what is going through people's heads, like Look at this person, all powerful, right? This ruler, he's got supernatural powers. He's two thirds God, but he's still going to end up in the sort of the dust heap, right? Uh, I feel like that's an Albert Brooks line, but in the dust heap, right? He's still going to end up at the underworld and he gets so close to getting out of it, but he doesn't. And at the end of the day, significantly, he comes back to... Or, And he says, okay, my destiny is to be a king. And I'm gonna accept that, right? My destiny is not to be immortal. My destiny is just to be a king. So therefore I'm gonna try to be the best possible king that I could be. And that's what he ends up doing. And I think that in many ways, that is sort of the message of the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? That, you know, Life is extraordinarily difficult. Your destiny does not suggest great things. But if you accept this destiny, you know, if you kind of accept this, then ultimately you can be happy. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that message. I don't know if that's a good message at all. But it's an interesting one, right? It's certainly a very interesting thing to say that, okay, You know, there is this kind of sense, right? And you can kind of see how it sort of is taken as a sort of a a religious text, which is to say that, you know, you're gonna go through pain, you're gonna go through struggle, and you're gonna end up in the underworld, but you're part of some overall overarching master plan. And on some level, you want to accept that that master plan is a good one and that you're part of it. And once you accept that, then you'll be able to get through life. Because look at this guy, Gilgamesh, who didn't accept it for a long time, but then had to come to terms with the fact that, okay, yes, this is my destiny. And he had every reason for that not to be his destiny, but he, he, it was, and he accepted it. And once he accepted it, that is when he was able to become the great person that he was. Again, I'm not saying that I agree with the message, right? There, there are some potential issues with the message. But nevertheless, um, I do think that that, that message is partly what makes this, this book so such a unique one and such an interesting one um and uh those are my thoughts on the epic of gilgamesh uh i i uh i think that there's only one person watching this now but uh if anybody does have any questions or any comments feel free to write them out but uh in the meantime i'll talk a little bit about what is coming up after this so um i up until last night I had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to talk about in the next video. Um, I uh, tried to teach an Italian cinema course for the fall, but I wasn't accepted to teach it. So I thought, well, if I'm not gonna be able to teach it at school, then I might as well just do a version of the class I was gonna teach on here. My loss will be your gain and hopefully your loss will be my gain, we'll, we'll, we'll mix it up. But, um, so I was thinking about doing The Bicycle Thief or Bicycle Thieves uh, by Vittorio De Sica, 1940s Italian neorealist film, post-war uh, movie, One of, again, one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. But uh, then last night I saw a movie which uh, really kind of blew me away, called the, uh, again, another 1940s movie, an American 1940s movie called uh, The Oxbow Incident, which to me is kind of like an anti-Western, but I don't know if other people will necessarily see it that way. i kind of also like to talk about that. So I wanna kind of think about whether or not I'm gonna talk about that one or talk about Bicycle Thieves. I'm not entirely sure, but it's gonna be one of those. Um, So again, next Wednesday at eight o'clock, I'll be talking about a movie rather than a book um, but I also do want to show one thing, which I know that some of you might be listening to the audio version of this, so I will I will explain this as well. Um, just a second here. Need to go find this. Let's see. I don't know if it's available. Hold on a second. Let me see. Okay. Yes. So, um, this is up on uh, what I'm showing now is something that is up on the Jay Hutch Talks Too Much YouTube channel. It's a list that I have available of audiobooks. Um, and I will probably be doing versions of these audiobooks. When I talk about the audiobooks, I'm probably going to be doing these ones. So one of the things that I thought is uh, if anybody out there was interested in looking at them in advance, uh, I'm not a big I'm I'm a much bigger fan of um, physical texts rather than non-physical texts. And even then, I'm a much bigger fan of non-physical texts over audiobooks because my mind tends to wander when I'm listening to audiobooks. And if my mind's not wandering and I'm just paying attention to them. I tend to fall asleep within about five minutes. So audio books are not my most favorite way of uh, engaging with literature, um, but it's become a bit of a necessary way to get through texts quickly and also avoid severe neck issues, which are becoming more and more of a problem as the years continue on. Um, so um, I am after all beyond your average uh, age of a Mesopotamian in, uh, 2100 BC, according to the research. So, um, so anyway, I'm going to be sort of relying on these books. I got them in chronological order. They stop at a certain point because, uh, this is all in terms of what is available in the public domain. So I'm certainly limited in terms of the, in terms of that. Um, but, uh, But yeah, so you can find these texts there. And um, if you want to, if I say, okay, we're going to read this book this week, then, uh, and you want to listen to it, then it's there for you. And I think that I might try and go in chronological order, which means that the next text that we would do is uh, this kind of this 15 hour, um, because I go by hour now instead of pages, uh, of the Iliad. So more mythology uh, followed by Homer's Odyssey. Um, So we go into sort of uh, Greek mythology. I'm thinking about maybe that'll be the next book I do. That's still a little bit down the line though. So, uh, but I'm also, what I, I, I would also like is I'd love to have people on to talk about these things as well, because this has been fun. This has been really fun talking for an hour and six minutes at this point. I have really enjoyed this, but I do think it would also be fun to talk with people about this. And I feel like it might be engaging to people watching to see me uh, and other people talk about this, not just me. So uh, if anybody wants to talk about any of these things, please let me know. I'd love to have you on. Uh, If any of you out there Uh, are interested in talking about either bicycle thieves or the oxbow incident, please let me know. Uh, I'd love to have you on next week. Um, But yeah, that's essentially what is uh, coming up. So um, that's it, really. I hope that this discussion on the Epic of Gilgamesh has been enjoyable for you to some degree. Uh, I hope that maybe it has encouraged some of you to look at the text If you have looked at the text already, I hope that it is in many ways sort of got you thinking about what is going on that could be sort of intriguing about the text. Um, And uh, if you want to talk about it uh, beyond just this video as well, I'm happy to do that too. You can shoot me a message or, or, or put something in the comment box as well. Um, let me say again, as I said in the first video, if you like this video, please like it, press the like button or the thumbs up, the thumbs up. Let me see those thumbs. And uh, subscribe to Jay Hutch Talks Too Much if you haven't subscribed yet. And we will see you in the next one. Looking forward to it. Take care. Bye bye.